pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, which of your children do you love the most? You can't answer that question without getting into a pile of trouble with somebody, and that's just the conundrum that faces Jesus in this morning's scripture. The laws of the Torah were as precious as their own children to pious Jews. They'd scrutinize the five books of the law and the Hebrew scriptures with a magnifying glass and decided that there were exactly 613 discrete statutes there. There were 365 negative proscriptions, thou shalt not, and 248 positive prescriptions, thou shalt, but they were all equally precious to Jesus' Jewish contemporaries. So which is the greater law? The law that prevents strangers from sneaking into your house and stealing your stuff, or the law that forbids people from driving under the influence of alcohol? Which is the greater law, the law that prevents Bristol-Myers Squibb from selling you drugs that might make your liver fail, or the one that prevents Honda from selling us cars with airbags that might explode on impact? It's hard to choose, isn't it? One day during the last week of Jesus' life, a lawyer asks him, which is the greatest commandment? Now, this lawyer is not Jesus' friendly defense counsel. Matthew tells us explicitly that this lawyer asks this question to test him. So this is a prosecuting attorney who cross-examines Jesus as a hostile witness. Whatever Jesus says, somebody's going to take umbrage. And once again, they think they've got him cornered. As with that question we looked at a couple of weeks ago, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? But once again, Jesus proves to be as elusive and hard to trap as a wolverine. The wild ones, not the tame ones that play football, sort of, in Ann Arbor. Which is the greatest commandment, asked the lawyer. And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer asks for only one greatest commandment, Jesus, but Jesus gives him two. Love God above all and your neighbor as yourself. It all hangs on this, he said. All the laws and the prophets hang on this greatest commandments. They ask for one, he gives them two, because everyone knows that when you hang a picture on the wall, you use two nails because then it's not likely to go crooked. Rather than choosing one of the 613 Hebraic laws, as the best, Jesus tells us what they all mean when you put them together in one place in a towering mountain of divine counsel. Bam! There he goes again, slipping their clutches like a diaphanous ghost. Love God with everything you have and everything you are and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' response, as you can see, is neither original nor sophisticated. He's just cribbing from the ancient scriptures. Love God above all comes from the book of Deuteronomy, and love your neighbor as yourself comes from the book of Leviticus, and the only original contribution Jesus seems to make to this precept is that he seems to be the first one to put these two simple Sunday school lessons together in one place. Now, he doesn't 
come right out and say, but implies that you can't love God unless you've loved the neighbor, and you really never love the neighbor till you've loved God first. Some of us think we have to choose between God and neighbor. Some people have so much love for the neighbor, they've none left over for God. They find it easier to love the neighbor they can see than the perhaps mythic deity they can't. I'm sympathetic. God seems so unreal, right? God is shy. God is retiring. Heaven gives its glimpses, says Robert Frost. Heaven gives its glimpses only to those not in a position to look too close. Yes? You can kiss your wife's lovely cheek. You can embrace your precious child. You can clasp your friend's reassuring hand. And the adamantine facet of a diamond will slice the flesh of your index finger if you press too hard. But God is so soft, so shadowy. But this might be true. God might be the most real thing in our existence. Not unreal, but most real. Maybe it's because God is real and it's we who are shadows and ephemera. That's the way the Quran of Islam puts it. Only God's existence, it says, is pure, unmixed, necessary, and substantial. And all other beings, protozoa, plankton, pine trees, porpoises, platypi, peonies, and Presbyterians, borrow their existence from the Creator. We borrow our existence. I love the way the Quran puts that. God's existence is the bank of being we draft from. God is not unreal, but most real. Too real sometimes for our limited human perception. Now, divine worship is not the only way to love God above all. You could love God by taking a walk across the thick, garish, mottled, multi-hued autumnal carpet that coats every walkway of our fair village just now and breathe a silent prayer of gratitude to God, great and giving God, thanks and thanks and ever thanks. Life is gift and birth windfall, and just to be here at all is an extravagance, an unmerited extravagance. Divine worship is not the only way to love God, but it's a good way. We love God by praying. We love God by singing. We love God by obeying God's law and listening to God's word proclaimed by the two blessed sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. And I hope this hour is not optional for you and your family. It's one way of honoring the commandment that Jesus thought of as the greatest of all. Love God above all. This commandment is to the 613 others what Muhammad Ali is to the world of boxing, the greatest. Some people can only love the neighbor and have none left over for God. Some people love God so much they've none left over for the flesh and blood with whom they share the planet. And religion, these folks say, is a private affair between God and me. Keep politics out of the pulpit. Don't bother me with ethical obligations to people I've never met and am not related to by birth or marriage. 
But then, of course, I remember what C.S. Lewis says. He says, your neighbor is God's creation. There are no ordinary people, he says. You have never met a mere mortal. It is immortals we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And you see what Professor Lewis is trying to say, right? We are all of us immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Rome, the eternal city, will one day pass away. The United States of America will one day cease to exist. Wind and water will someday grind the Rockies as flat as Kansas. And even the burning stars, five billion years old, some of them, will one day spend their fuel and go dark. But we, on the other hand, are everlasting splendors. And therefore, says Dr. Lewis, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your experience. When he was a young man, the Harvard sociologist Robert Coles worked in Dorothy Day's Catholic Worker Soup Kitchen in Manhattan. And he remembers one day when he and his fellow hash slingers were struggling with a Bowery bum wino, an angry, truculent man of about 50 with long gray hair and a scraggly beard and a sinister, toothless grin. And Dorothy Day says, For all we know, he might be God himself, come here to test us. So let us treat him as an honored guest and look at his face as if it were the most beautiful thing we could imagine. You see how neighbor love and God love go together? One last thing and then I'll quit. My friend David is one of my favorite people on earth. He's a senior at Grand Haven High School on the opposite western shore of Lake Michigan. David is friendly and charming and gets good grades at Grand Haven High. And best of all, David laughs at all of my jokes, no matter how sad and sorry they are. And most of them are sad and sorry. And David has a few good jokes of his own. Everybody loves David. It doesn't hurt that he's blonde and blue-eyed and stands six feet, four inches tall. He plays goalie on the Grand Haven High School water polo team, and he has the chiseled physique of someone who spends hours in the pool. His body is like an upside-down triangle, broad at the shoulders and chiseled at the waist, tapered at the waist. You just want to hate him. Earlier this month, David's classmates voted him to be part of the homecoming court at Grand Haven High, but sadly, they did not crown him homecoming king. As it turns out, a scheming senior named Sidney Watson wrested the crown from David and other deserving seniors by waging a campaign for two of her best friends. It was a vicious and aggressive vote-getting campaign that would shame the Republican Democratic parties in this election year. She convinced her classmates to elect Bradley Langemott as homecoming king and Bridget Marcinkus as homecoming queen. Sidney Watson, you see, has been working with 
special education children since she was herself a child, all four years at Grand Haven High. So Bradley, this year's homecoming king, has cerebral palsy. He gets around in a wheelchair and talks with the labored speech of that malady. He can barely understand him. And Bridget, the new homecoming queen, has Down syndrome. She is very beautiful and very smart, but not in any conventional way. It was the oddest homecoming in recent memory. And as for Sidney Watson, the scheming senior who engineered this fiasco, she looks like she could be a homecoming queen herself, a beautiful blonde. And she's off to college next year. Can you guess what she wants to study? Sydney wants to be a special education teacher. Now, I don't know anything about Sydney Watson's spiritual sensibilities, but I do know that she's learned something from Jesus, maybe by intention and maybe by accident. She's learned at least half of the greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. It's just half, but it's a great start. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.